Welcome to life, bringing you insight and experiences into love, relationships, and fertility with a focus on enjoying life and moving forward. Today, we'll be speaking about miscarriage with Dr. Laura Shashin. Welcome to life, love, insight, fertility experiences. I'm thrilled to be here today with Dr. Laura Shaheen. She is the perfect person to have this conversation about pregnancy loss. And I had been wanting to find somebody who would be wonderful to talk about miscarriage because it's so prevalent. And she is an author, she's a professor, it's her specialty. She is um, a big contributor to ASRM and Resolve. And so thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful opportunity. Oh, God, thanks. And thank you for getting up so early because you're on the West Coast. So that would be <laughs> special. <laughs> no problem. So the reason why I wanted to talk about uh, pregnancy loss is because it's something that so many people go through. And I don't think people necessarily realize how prevalent it is until they start this journey. And um, just to start to frame it a little bit, from somebody with your background would be fabulous. Oh, thank you. Well, you touched on some really important points just in your introduction, just how common miscarriage is and how, um, how important it is, how it's defined. And so, um, and because that sort of dictates how common it is as well. I mean, I, really one, you know, the, the statistic you'll hear the most is one in four pregnancies will end in miscarriage. And that's really talking about clinical, clinically recognized miscarriages. You know, miscarriages that get to the point where you can see something on ultrasound or test, you know, tissue. It's called a clinical miscarriage, um, a clinical pregnancy loss. But if you include um, biochemical miscarriages, which can be a positive pregnancy test followed by a late or heavy period, um, it can be up to 70% of fertilized eggs actually end in miscarriage. So it's quite so common. Yeah, I'm so happy you're able to put that number out there. Not that people have to experience this, but that you can put that number out there because very often people don't know that. And I think the more that we could say it and the more we could get that information out there, the better it is. Well, because people, you know, that's not the narrative. The narrative is you no, spend your not. whole life um, contracepting or being told how easy it is to conceive. Um, and when you that when you're ready to conceive, you can stop whatever birth control method you might be using and it's going to happen right away. And that as soon as you see a positive pregnancy test, you know, in the movies, then, you know, quick flash scene forward to delivering and, you know, right. labor and delivery. The narrative is not miscarriage. So when it happens and people don't talk about it, it's very shocking. People feel very alone and isolated and they feel that it's abnormal. Yeah. And it's actually quite a normal process that doesn't take away the grief and it doesn't take away the lost time and the sadness. Um, but it's actually such a common occurrence it's actually a natural process and we need to know that because it doesn't mean that we don't investigate it it doesn't mean that we don't ask questions but i think people feel so isolated that it adds to the emotional toll absolutely i, I couldn't agree with you more on that i mean i have some people who i've worked with who write about it and they need to talk about it 
so that people realize the pain in the morning and the grief, even if they're, they go on to get pregnant, that kind of stays with them. Um, I think it's really important that we mention that you're doing a second edition of your book that's coming out in October, specifically because of the changing guidelines that are going on right now in defining this through ASRM. Could Absolutely, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, so um, traditionally, uh, before 2013, the definition of recurrent miscarriage was three consecutive clinically recognized pregnancies that were lost before viability. And so there's so much in that, what I just said, it's like one sentence, but it says so much. So it, three. And does it give a time frame for it? I mean, that's a huge statement alone. Correct. Um, no, there wasn't a time frame, but it said three. Okay. It said consecutive. So somebody who had a miscarriage, then had a baby, then had another miscarriage, um, they, they wouldn't say that that's recurrent because someone had a baby. Um, and then the clinically recognized pregnancy loss, that means it's, again, far enough along that you could see something on ultrasound or test tissue. And that's typically about six, six and a half weeks pregnant. So it excluded um, biochemical miscarriages. In 2013, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, or ASRM, which is the real um, professional society for reproductive endocrinologists that specialize in first trimester miscarriage, that's like me, changed the definition, um, clarified it and said recurrent miscarriage is, um, it's okay to start an evaluation if someone has two clinically recognized miscarriages. Mm -hmm. So they dropped the number from three to two and they took out the word consecutive. And they still clarified that it needed to be far enough along uh, to be considered a clinical pregnancy loss. They did not include biochemical miscarriages in the need to do an evaluation. And um, they did clarify that if someone's doing studies, that they needed to still have three. But to, in, in the field where you're working with patients and you're um, doing an evaluation, it's okay to start an evaluation with two. And so that was a big change, and that was seven years ago. That's really huge because I am not a doctor. I do typically encourage people after one to ask and to just become curious about why that happened. Yeah, yeah. It's a big change to go from two to three. Yeah, and so for my first edition of, of my book, Not Broken, um, you know, I talk about that, that that's the definition and, you know, that was published in 2017. Um, but this March in 2020, ASRM updated their definition of infertility and recurrent miscarriage. And they define recurrent miscarriage as a disease separate from infertility with two pregnancy losses. And they took out the word clinical mm -hmm. um, and they just said a very generic statement after that, just that every pregnancy loss should be evaluated and discussed, you know? Yeah. And so removing the word clinical miscarriage, um, although it leaves it open, it doesn't say every biochemical miscarriage should be evaluated. It just allows for more um, interpretation and, and room. And the, you know, it is important. There are studies that show that women with multiple biochemical miscarriages you know, do have a higher risk of another miscarriage. They do have sort of the same findings that women with later miscarriages can have like anatomic issues, hormonal issues, and really do deserve to have that evaluation. 
and um and you know that's important and i think it really stems too from the european um uh society of human reproduction and embryology ESHRI. you know they came out with this definition in 2017 so it took three years for asrm to update but i'm just so glad that they did and it really instigated a second edition of the book because i wanted to clarify yeah no i'm, I'm so glad that they did also i, I think it's very important uh, also from the emotional toll it takes because many women even just if they have one pregnancy loss regardless of if it's very early or very late can have a profound impact and so what i find is with the people who i'm working with whether there's a loss after four weeks or a loss after eight or 12 or even 26, the impact can be pretty strong in their ability to kind of enjoy a next pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Be able to take a deep breath during a next pregnancy until they either hit the mark of where that loss was, and in some cases until the baby is born. Absolutely, yeah. I, uh... Patients have taught me that that sort of innocent joy of a positive pregnancy test is taken away after a miscarriage. It's a wonderful way to put it. And there's a lot of grieving that goes on um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of sadness that it can't be enjoyed, sometimes anger. And so just to be able to get at that and start the grief at that point is even helpful to be able to talk about it, I find. Yeah, I, I just hope that it allows for more fulfilling discussions between patients and, and doctors. Um, I do want to really emphasize that even if you do testing and evaluation for recurrent miscarriage, most of the time you don't find an issue in the people that are getting pregnant because the issue is in the embryo. The most common cause of miscarriage is a chromosome imbalance or a genetic issue within the embryo. It's unique to that pregnancy and it doesn't mean that it would happen again. Right. So most people will go on without significant testing or intervention to have a healthy baby and family without significant intervention. I really want to emphasize that. Um, I, um, I hope that this relaxing of the definition will allow people to have fulfilling conversations and get those discussions from doctors rather than the dismissive, oh, well, we're not going to do testing until you've had three. Yeah, I, I hope so too, because it's a lot about empowering the patient mm -hmm. to be able to have that dialogue and bring that up. Because I find that sometimes the doctors want to talk about it and sometimes they want to make it into a very light situation because there is what you had said before, approximately 70%, which is huge. So if we know approximately 70%, then, but really there's only um, something that we have to investigate in one out of eight. That's a huge disparity, a huge difference. So exactly. So that's important to look at. Um, it doesn't take away from the feelings that people feel when they do have a miscarriage though. What do we do with people who have recurrent pregnancy loss? Is there a standard protocol or a way to talk to people about that? Absolutely. Um, but I will say that professional medical societies differ in their recommendations. <laughs> um, and so um, patients and providers um, can 
get confused and um and they're it is it is a really frustrating situation you know um the there are certain tests that are very much agreed upon um so if someone has had recurrent miscarriage it's important to do a uterine cavity evaluation to make sure there's not an issue for an anatomic issue um, causing miscarriage it's important to do um karyotypes, which is a blood test looking for what's something called a balanced translocation in both of the people that are getting pregnant. It's a genetic issue that's very rare, but it's a um, recommended test to do. There's some hormonal screening to do like thyroid, um, prolactin screening for diabetes, um, certain, um, you know, immune issues, blood clotting issues. Um, but there are things that professional societies agree upon and then there's so much other room for people to um do different tests it's a very controversial field you know? why would it be so controversial well because um guidelines change um but a lot of doctors don't keep up with the guidelines um it's you know it's it's true um you know, part of the reason is if you don't, just like anything in medicine, if you don't focus on something, it's not like you're reading all of the studies that come out. If you aren't going to the professional medical societies and keep up to date, so most obstetricians are really focusing on um, other parts of their practice, you know, uh, delivering babies or, um, you know, wellness checkups and pap smears and things. And most of them aren't really focused on recurrent miscarriage. And so they're, they might be practicing like they learned how to practice 20 years ago. Yeah, we need them to go to your classes. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's, it's hard. Uh, you know, you go into medicine uh, to, to help people. And, um, you know, a lot of medicine can be black and white. You know, if someone has high blood pressure, you can counsel them about lifestyle modifications or give them a prescription to make their blood pressure look better. You know, you can fix it. Um, with recurrent miscarriage, because there's not always a clear cut answer, it's very gray. It's, um, it's uncomfortable for a lot of physicians and healthcare providers because they want to give that answer. Um, and it's very emotional. The patients are vulnerable. They want answers. And so um, it's, um, there's a lot of room for, frustration. Yeah, I, I can understand that on the part of the physician and the provider and then how to address it. And they want the patient to be optimistic about moving forward if it's one loss. And mm -hmm. if it's one loss now that they can investigate, it's even better. Just from my own perspective, I, I don't really like sweeping those feelings under the rug because eventually they come back. And they come back at times that you don't necessarily want them to. So you want to use, I like to use the word just to grieve it or just to recognize the loss as what it was or what it is so that when you do move forward, it just makes it a little bit easier. And so for some people that just means talking about it for a couple of minutes and for other people, it means talking about it for longer. And that's okay. Absolutely. And I find with the partners as well, lots of times they're at a loss and they feel like they don't necessarily have the, the right to grieve kind of quote unquote because it's not their body and they're not going through it but they are going through it they're just going through a different path of it yeah yes yeah the emotional piece of this i think is as important as the testing and the treatment piece 
um, I feel like the studies do show that with people with miscarriage, if you follow them without any intervention, you know, over 90, 95% of them, if they keep trying, they'll eventually have their family. You know, it might, and there's follow-up for five years that, and that's a long time to wait, but absolutely people will be successful. It's within five years, not within two. I mean, within two years, it might be closer to like, you know, 50, 60%. But if you wait longer, it will, you know, if you, if you're getting pregnant, eventually it, it will happen. It's just the waiting that's so, so hard. It's very hard. It, it really is. So when we look at um, when we look at this in first trimester, because mm-hmm. that is where the I think the majority of the loss comes in. Is that is that accurate in first trimester? Yes. Yes. So if somebody is having recurrent pregnancy loss in the first trimester, you would recommend these tests be taken. I do. Yes. Um, later loss, like in the second and third trimester, that's. Um, that's out of my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're getting into less um, genetic issues. You know, most chromosome issues or genetic issues, the pregnancy will stop developing in the first trimester. Um, later losses are sometimes associated with um, uh, cervical incompetence, um, infection, um, some blood clotting disorders, and then oftentimes it's unexplained. You know, um, that word's so hard. Right? With all of this, the word unexplained is so hard. Absolutely. We need more research. That's another huge um, issue is we need more research in all of women's health and reproduction, but specifically miscarriage. So early term um, loss, early term miscarriage, even those that we can't necessarily capture because it is your periods two weeks late and then you know, you get a heavy period. How, how would that be studied or could it even be looked at? Honestly, we, we can't study like tissue. Like we can't, mm-hmm. because it's so early along, it's, um, we can't do genetic testing or chromosomal testing because there's really no, nothing to, to test. It's like very small number of cells. Um, but, you know, what we have learned with these home pregnancy tests that are so accurate and they're able to pick up on the pregnancy hormone, you know, even days before a missed period or, you know, within a week. Unbelievable. Long when you think about it in the scheme of things. And they have only gotten more and more um, sensitive and accurate. Right. And without the explanation to women of how common this is and how inefficient reproduction is. And so it's increasing our stress and our worry that there's something wrong with our body um, without explaining just how many embryos are abnormal. You know, like we know that um, even when they were developing the home pregnancy test, one of the biggest arguments against putting it in the drugstore and having people be able to buy it themselves is biochemical miscarriages happen so often, you know, two, three, four times a year, and women aren't going to be able to handle that emotionally. (laughs) It's a big pushback, but we've learned just how common it is. And the other way that we've learned is the ability to do genetic testing on embryos. So Mm -hmm. with IVF and the use of that technology and testing just 
so many embryos over the last 20 years, we've realized, my goodness, when someone's 40 years old, 80 to 90% of the embryos that that couple creates are going to be abnormal. You know, the chance of miscarriage at 40 years old is 50%. You have a positive pregnancy test. There's a 50% chance it doesn't continue. And that's normal, but the message isn't out. And it doesn't feel normal, and that doesn't mean that it's okay. But um, the, when doctors say, oh, just try again, or if someone's young, oh, you're young, you have plenty of time, um, they are actually scientifically and medically correct. <laughs> but it feels dismissive if you're the patient, if that's all you hear, and they don't explain the rest of the story and just how common it is for embryos to be abnormal. I think that's like such a great word to use with people too. Like, don't you find they have a sigh of relief when you say it's normal? Yes, I try to explain. This doesn't mean that the feelings aren't validated, but your body is actually doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah. You know? um, and um, yeah, it's just, um, it, it doesn't take it away, but it, um, it just validates a lot of those feelings. I mean, you do such a good job in your podcast just talking about the emotional aspect of fertility and miscarriage. And people really have described it as, you know, P- PTSD, you know, and, and trauma. I had one person who unfortunately had like a 27-week loss. And I'm so sorry. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking for her. Heartbreaking for her husband. It was... I, I get tears in my eyes just thinking about it. And even now when they have a child, it still comes back, you know, because there's so many different ways to to go through that. And it's 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 very hard, it really is because it's a it's a huge loss. So it doesn't take away from loving the child that you have in front of you, but you still have to recognize what you've been through. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do find people though that after first trimester have a profound impact also. And, but, but more so with reaching that point again. So if it's a 10 weeks, they have to get over that 10 week hump. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, I mean, just with a positive pregnancy test, what are, what we do is we start thinking, oh, when's the due date? Yes. You know, um, you know, is it a boy or a girl? You know, you have these visions of what your family is going to be like. And so when that's taken away, um, it's a grieving, it's a, it's loss, it's a lost time. It's a loss of this vision of what you expected to happen. And that's really, um, that's what I find so wonderful about support groups or Instagram posts or, you know, the work that you do online. I, it allows people to realize that they're not alone. And some people might find that expression overused, but it's an important thing to recognize. And some people are a little shy to join a support group. They prefer not to talk about it, but there's a relief that comes with it, realizing that this is normal and you're not alone and it's not fair that you had to go through it, but you did. And maybe that just gives you a different perspective and allows you to be a little stronger. And the testing that could go on now that you described, it doesn't sound incredibly invasive. True. Yeah. Blood tests. And, um, and then, you know, it's for the uterine cavity evaluation, usually it's something like a saline sonogram or hysterosalpingogram where it is a, like a pelvic ultrasound or a pelvic procedure that I would say that that's the most invasive test. 
Yeah, but compared to what people go through, that doesn't it doesn't sound um, as if it's a painful test. Correct. But no residual there. So, so all of all of this said, I suppose that with miscarriage or recurrent pregnancy loss, it falls into very often unexplained infertility, which is very frustrating to grapple with and very hard to grapple with. The difference in some of this, though, is it doesn't, most of it does not lead to infertility. Most of it leads to trying to figure out if there's something we could do to support the, um, the female as they move forward in the next pregnancy. And if there is even anything that needs to be done. Right. I think, um, you know, the, the, the way I see most of my patients is the first visit is really a lot of talking and a lot of education and a lot of um, understanding what their history is. And then it's testing. And then at the follow-up visit, you know, and even before we do the testing, I say, listen, there's a majority of the time we don't find an answer and you need to know that. I need to prepare you for that because the issue is usually in the embryo and we're testing the people that are getting pregnant. And at the follow-up visit, we, I sort of say, listen, if we don't find something that we can fix, like a, a thyroid issue we can give a medication for or a fibroid that we can remove, really the options are two. Number one is keep trying. Um, and number two is honestly IVF with chromosomal screening of the embryos, you know, to decrease the risk of another chromosomally abnormal embryo implanting. And those are such extremes, you know, like really invasive, expensive, time-consuming IVF versus trying again. And so I try to emphasize that no matter, you know, neither one is perfect. Um, and I try to emphasize that no matter what, no matter how you get pregnant next time, even if it's with trying naturally, one of the best things that I can do is to give supportive care. And so there, and there are studies that show that women who do get supportive care with their obstetricians or their reproductive endocrinologist, which is me, which means, you know, early blood tests, early ultrasounds, um, an on-call provider, whether it's a nurse or a doctor that they can call if they have spotting, you mm -hmm. know, that supportive care and just knowing that their questions are going to get answered results in a higher life birth rate. Nobody can explain that, you know, nobody can um, give a scientific answer. Um, but I think, I think that's one of the things that we help people the most with is that a reproductive endocrinologist is so used to helping people through that first trimester, you know, because people get pregnant with IVF or with an IUI and, you know, we help them through the first trimester and then they go to their obstetrician. Uh -huh. Right. So my office and my team is just so used to people who are very invested in the pregnancy, very nervous through the first trimester. And so, um, but a lot of people can't see an RE, you know, there aren't very many in the country and, um, and a lot of them might not focus on recurrent miscarriage. So, you know, I, what I'd love for people who are listening to this podcast to take away from or who read my book is, you know, I want you to be an advocate for your care. I want you to understand what the tests are, to have a fulfilling conversation um, it doesn't mean that you have to have every test done under the sun, but ask for what you need. Hey, when I get pregnant next time, can I do blood tests? Like, how am I going to get my questions answered? Be vulnerable. Tell that provider, I am going to be so scared until I get past eight weeks. Like, how am I going to get support from your team? You know, and, you know, maybe you can connect with a nurse in that office that 
you know, she might not be in the office every single day, but you know that if Sally's in the office, she can talk to you because you had spotting last night. You know, I, it's just. I, I just love that. I really do. I tend to give people, well, before we were working on Zoom, I tend to pe give everybody who comes into my office a journal and a pen. And Absolutely. So I love that takeaway that you just gave. And maybe if you don't mind, can I just ask one more question before we end? Yes. The spotting, because the spotting doesn't necessarily mean something awful is happening. Correct. Yes. Very common to have spotting in the first trimester. It does not necessarily mean miscarriage. It doesn't. Could could that be almost anything, the spotting? Or Absolutely. You know, there's so many changes that happen in the first trimester, hormonal changes, the uterus is expanding, the placenta is implanting. I um we very often never know exactly why someone's spotting, but I imagine you think about that the uterus is so vascular, right? And if the placenta is implanting and it might hit a little vessel as it's implanting, I can imagine that there would be a little bit of bleeding. Um, so I can't take away that fear, you know, that, you know, oh my gosh, here we go again. It's going to be another miscarriage because this is exactly what happened before. But I can say, listen, you know, we can come in the office tomorrow. We can take a look with an ultrasound if it's far enough along to see anything. We can do another blood test just to kind of give you that feedback. Um, and, you know, I have definitely had people who are just like, I know that I've had a miscarriage. Like, I just, this happened to me before. I just know it. I saw it, you know. And they come in and everything is fine on the ultrasound, you know. So you just can't assume. You just have to find that provider and that office is going to hold your hand through the process. Right. No, I think that's great. And your takeaways are wonderful, really, just to be your own advocate and to find that supportive person, you know, and let them know what you need and, and not be afraid to talk about it. This is all normal. So if somebody wants to get a hold of you, how would they do that? I'm very active on social media and I do get a lot of requests on Instagram for patients who would love to connect with me and be my patient. And I'm happy to do second opinion consults, but I'm always very honest with people that the type of care for miscarriage care is not something that you can really do over the phone and across the country and, you know, in a different city because it's, it's ongoing, you know, it's, um, you know, any provider can do the tests that I outline in my book or, or on my blog. And it's much more about the ongoing care and the being an advocate for your own care wherever you are. Um, just connecting with me and me being the doctor is not a quick fix because I just can't do it across the country. That's great. And they're reaching out to you because of everything that you have to offer on your Instagram with a huge element of fun, but <laughs> you know, which is wonderful. It's a great way. And I could see why people are reaching out to you. So if somebody does want to reach out to you who is local, who could possibly treat you or with a question for a second opinion, they could do so on one of the social media platforms. And if anybody has any questions or any comments, please feel free to reach out to me at lauriemetz.net. Thank you. Thank you.